We'll also look at them to see if they have a passive integrated transponder tag in them. People probably aren't familiar with it on the research side, but a lot of people that have cats and dogs will get their animals microchipped. Mm -hmm. And so that microchip is a specific number tied to that animal. And then you can read it with a little reader and get information on that specific animal. And so it's exactly like that. We put those tags in the fish and it allows us to track them throughout their lifetime then. There's also a lot of pit tag arrays that are across the river. So if the fish swim across that, it'll actually read that that tag number. Wow. And so you get an idea of where that fish is at a certain time. And, you know, possibly if it's moving upstream or downstream, if it goes over a barrier, things like that. Wow, that's really cool. It's like uh, scanning groceries. Exactly. Hello, New Mexico. James Pittman here with another edition of the New Mexico Wildlife Podcast. Well, we haven't done an episode that has focused on fisheries management in a while, and I wanted to do a show that talked about fish management, but specifically for fish species that are native uh, here in the state of New Mexico. So to help us with that, we have the Native Fish Program Supervisor for the Colorado Basin, Matt Ziegler. Matt, thanks for joining us. Hi, James. How's it going? Good, good. We're, uh, we're glad to have you today. It should be exciting. So before we dive into all things native fish, tell us a little bit about you. How long have you been on with Game and Fish and kind of what jobs have you held? So I've been with the department about six and a half years now. I started as the San Juan River native fish biologist um, within the native fish program. And about three years ago, I was promoted to my current position, the Colorado River Basin native fish supervisor. Nice. Nice. How about prior to Game and Fish? What were you doing then? Um, so I grew up in Pennsylvania, so quite a ways away from here. <laughs> uh, kind of lucked into actually being a fish biologist. I had no idea it was a career course you could take and happened to run into a buddy at school when I was in high school and said that he had went and interviewed at a college to be a fish biologist and take courses there. And I thought, holy cow, that's for me. That's what I'm doing. So I ended up going to that college. It was a small college in northern Pennsylvania, Mansfield University of Pennsylvania. Got my bachelor's degree there in fisheries and got accepted into New Mexico State University to do a master's degree in fish and wildlife. Had never before been in the southwest. (laughs) It was uh, quite a surprise for a kid from Pennsylvania driving down here in August to Las Cruces, (laughs) but was there for quite a few years working on my master's degree, started looking at upper thermal tolerances of Rio Grande cutthroat trout, and also looked at some effects of increasing stream temperatures and drought on the species and how that affects their persistence across all the populations in New Mexico and Colorado. After I finished my master's, I actually stayed on at New Mexico State University as a researcher for a couple years, uh, primarily doing additional work on Rio Grande cutthroat trout. And I did projects all over the state in the Valle Caldera, as well as got to do some work in Guadalupe National Park, looking at a a population of rainbow trout that's actually there in McKitchin Creek. So a variety of different stuff. And after a couple of years there, I kind of decided that I wanted to get more into the management side of stuff and applied for game and fish. And as I said, started as the San Juan River native fish biologist. 
So a lot with, with native fish species then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pretty much my entire career has been mostly native fish stuff. Nice. Well, so tell us a little bit about your current job. We'll, we'll dive into the specifics, but kind of from a 10,000-foot view, just kind of tell us what you do on a daily basis. Yeah, so my my main position is to actually oversee three native fish biologists, and we all focus on native fish species in the Colorado River Basin in New Mexico. So that includes the San Juan, the Zuni, the Gila, and I also kind of have a kicker, the Members Basin, which does not flow into the Colorado River Basin. It's a closed basin, but that is also under my purview. Uh, we primarily work with non-game species nice. and species that are either species of greatest conservation need in New Mexico or they're state listed as threatened, endangered, and generally federally listed as uh, threatened or endangered. And then there's another branch of native fish management. Yeah, exactly. So, um, like I said, I cover the the Colorado River Basin in New Mexico, which is the western portion of the state. And then there, I have a counterpart that oversees two biologists and a and a technician that work on native fish in the Rio Grande, Canadian, and Pecos ranges. Well, kind of focusing on. The Colorado River Basin and the area that you cover. Tell us a little bit about what the native fish species are that are found there, and like you had mentioned, their their status, whether they're threatened, endangered, or what have you. Yeah, so I'll I'll just kind of start at the north there in the San Juan and work south. So in the San Juan, there's there's two species that we're mainly focused on recovering. Uh, that is the Colorado. Pike minnow. If no one's ever seen that, I suggest at this point you pause your podcast and go look up a picture of it. They're really cool fish. They're the largest minnow species in North America. They live up to 40 years, and historically there's reports of them up to 6 feet and 80 pounds. Holy cow. Yeah, they're actually native to most of the Colorado River drainage and most of the major tributaries, so including the San Juan as well as the Gila in Arizona. There's actually... A really cool historical report I saw a couple years ago where they actually had a picture of from the Gila close to the New Mexico border there was a picture of a guy who had a had a donkey and he had two Colorado pike minnows essentially just like hanging over the edge and were <laughs> almost touching the bottom holy cow so big species um, those Colorado pike minnow are are listed as endangered under the ESA, so they're they're federally listed as endangered, as well as um, listed as endangered in the state of New Mexico. We're also focused there on razorback sucker, which is a large sucker species. They also live a long time, up to 40 years, and can grow up to three feet long. So wow. another big species. Uh, they have recently been petitioned to be downlisted to threatened. Under the Endangered Species Act, um, they are not listed at all in New Mexico, though. Wow. Wow. Since these fish get that large, are these fish that you can catch while you're out angling or, or not really? I mean, it's possible that you could catch them. I have seen some Colorado pike minnow, now some small ones pop up in fishing reports every once in a while, but they're generally not targeted. They are listed, and they we don't have any angling for them in the state of New Mexico. 
we've just been more recently getting larger fish into the upper San Juan, close to the Animus confluence. These fish, though, Colorado pike minnow are not your typical minnow species. When they get larger, they eat fish. Do they have a, a mouth like a pike? So they, you know, they don't have large teeth like a pike. They actually get, as they get larger, they get this really big head on them and a really large mouth so they can chow down on anything they can fit into it. What about the sucker? Um, so the razorback sucker, um, like normal sucker, they'll feed on aquatic insects in the river and stuff. You know, like any of your other type of sucker, you can catch them angling. So it's always possible. Wow. What about other species? So moving down then, like into the Gila, I, you know, I think most of the listeners or people who are familiar with New Mexico. Uh, the only game species that, you know, I, I work to manage is Gila trout. Nice. And then besides that, um, we work with a couple uh, smaller minnow species in the Gila. That's the loach minnow and spike dace. And those are both state endangered and federally endangered. And then we also work with round-tailed chub, which kind of has an interesting taxonomic history. It was originally split into three different species that were native to the, the Gila drainage, which was the Gila chub, the headwater chub, round-tailed chub. Gila chub was federally listed as endangered. Uh, just recently, they kind of lumped those three species back into one species under round-tailed chub. How big do they get? You know, the biggest I've seen is probably 13 to 15 inches. They're still a decent-sized fish. Yeah, they get pretty decent-sized. There's a lot of them in the the west fork of the Gila um, above the cliff dwellings, as well as the middle fork of the Gila. And honestly, you know, chub are a species that are very similar to trout in what they feed on. And will definitely take a spinner or a worm or any type of fly you can get in front of them. Really? Yep. That's pretty interesting. Why do you think, because a lot of these native species seem like they they get pretty big, right? They, they're they comparable to game fish species. So why were they never desirable or targeted just because there aren't very many? You know, I think it has a lot to do with just, you know, how, how trout were spread around. Okay. Most of not just the Southwest, but the U.S. in general. And a lot of these species had, you know, an unfair reputation as, you know, a trash fish. Okay. That makes sense. Makes sense. So what about, you said the Membres is a closed river system, so it doesn't flow into anything. Um, what about species there? So there were, were primarily focused on Chihuahua Chub, which is... Um, a cross between a Chihuahua and a Chub. Exactly. <laughs> um, which, is a, which is listed as threatened um, federally and then state endangered. So Chihuahua Chub... In, in the U.S. are only found in the Members River drainage. They're also found in a couple drainages in Mexico. But for the entire U.S., it's just the Members Basin. Wow. Wow. So uh, along those lines, talking about this is a species that's only found in this one spot, what is the the importance of conserving and managing these, these native species versus sport fish? You know, I think 
for me, it's important, one, in preserving that biodiversity that was originally there. You know, a lot of the species we work on in New Mexico are found in a small limited area, either just in New Mexico or just a few basins around New Mexico. So I think maintaining them is really important. And, you know, you start kind of removing some of those species from the ecosystem and you start to see that it gets, you know, pretty homogenized and you're just left with a few species and there's, you know, you lose that ecosystem functioning that you originally had. Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, talking about managing native species, how how do you manage native species? Are there things like surveys or habitat projects or what are you really focused on? Yeah, we do a lot of different things for for native fish in New Mexico, really across the board. You know, a lot of the stuff we're doing is not, I guess I would say, in a vacuum as we're generally working in large partnerships for a lot of recovery of these species. In the San Juan, we are a part of the San Juan River Basin Recovery Implementation Program, which is focused on recovering Colorado Plake Minnow and Razorback Sucker in the San Juan Basin. And it also has, a, you know, kind of a second part to that, which is allowing water development in the San Juan River Basin to continue while we're still recovering those species. That's not, that's not the only place we do that. You know, in, in the Gila, we're also involved in a large recovery program. And then even in the members, you know, there's a small recovery team for Chihuahua Chub. Okay. Okay. And so within that, you know, there's, there's a lot of different things we do. Um, as a department to work towards recovering those fish. In the San Juan Basin, we're, we're involved in monitoring. The department itself has been in charge of a project since the 90s that was started when that program initially began. Um, it's called Small Bodied Fishes Monitoring. And the point of that monitoring program is to actually go out survey the San Juan and look for young of the year Colorado Plague Men and Razorback Sucker. And it's actually, it's a great, it's a great monitoring program. One of the few monitoring programs where we as a department actually sample outside of New Mexico. Wow. So we actually, every year we'll, we'll float the San Juan River from the confluence of the Animus River the whole way downstream into Utah wow. to a place called Clay Hills, Utah, which is right above Lake Powell. And so we will sample with, with seines to try and capture those young a year fish. And so it's about 180 miles that we float. And, you know, really it wasn't, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, especially for Colorado Plague Minnow that are such a long lived species and as depopulated as the population was in the San Juan, it took a long time for us to build up that population. And in 2016, we actually captured the first wild young of year Colorado pike minnow that had been seen in the San Juan since the 90s. Wow. Wow. So is that really just monitoring presence, yes or no? Or are you taking measurements or what are you doing? Yeah, so we'll take measurements on most of the fish we catch. Now there's a lot of non-natives in there. Um, there's red shiners, western mosquito fish. And a couple others, and you know we'll we'll try and get a good uh, representation of of lengths and weights on all those. Something if we catch Colorado pikemen or Razorback sucker, we'll take weights and lengths. We'll also look at them to see if they have a passive integrated transponder tag in them. 
So it's a pit tag. It's something that we use a lot in fisheries and other wildlife management. People probably aren't familiar with it on the research side, but a lot of people that have cats and dogs will get their animals microchipped. Mm-hmm. And so that microchip is a specific number tied to that animal. And then you can read it with a little reader and get information on that specific animal. And so it's exactly like that. We put those tags in the fish and it allows us to track them throughout their lifetime then. So we'll do that as well. And then hopefully we can track those fish from their, you know, just a couple inches long until they're three feet long and adults. Wow. Wow. So you're actively scanning the fish that you saying to see if they have that microchip, that pit tag in them. Yep. And then that is associated with the measurements and that how that progresses over their life. Yep. So we'll we'll take that we'll take that information, we'll bring it back and we have a database that we keep all that in so we can track that individual fish through time. There's also a lot of on the San Juan and they have them other places um, throughout different river systems, but they have pit tag arrays that are across the river. So if the fish swim across that, it'll actually read that that tag number. Wow. And so you get an idea of where that fish is at a certain time. And, you know, possibly if it's moving upstream or downstream, if it goes over a barrier, things like that. Wow, that's really cool. It's like uh, scanning groceries. Exactly. (laughs) Well, other than the the float survey, the saying, uh, what else you got going on? Yeah, we uh, we're just getting started with a couple interesting projects in the San Juan that are focused on Razorback Sucker. The species, we have not been able to show that it's successfully recruiting in in the river. And both Razorback Sucker and Colorado Pikeville have pretty interesting life histories for for fish. So they spawn and the eggs will hatch relatively quickly. And when they hatch, they come out as a, a larval fish that is not does not look anything like a fish. It can't really move by itself, and so it, it passively drifts in the current downstream. And then they get into these warm backwaters that are zero velocity. So they sit there and they, they grow and then, you know, fully form into a, a fish. How long does that take? Not very long. It depends it depends on water temperature, obviously as to how fast they'll grow, but figure something like something like Colorado Pike Minnow, they will spawn like June, July. Eggs hatch relatively quickly, and then we sample in September for those younger year fish, and by that point those younger year fish are about an inch and a half long so they're they're going from you know very small 13 millimeters up to like 40 to 50 millimeters in a couple months wow so they'll they'll grow fast but the issue with razorback sucker is we've been able to detect that they're successfully spawning we've caught larval razorback suckers but we haven't really had any evidence of them recruiting past that larval stage and we're not really sure so we actually started uh two new projects with some partners through that recovery implementation program to look at the the spawning ecology of razorback sucker and so there's a couple things that we do know 
about the population so far is, you know, we have we have there's several thousand adult Razorback suckers out in the river, but through a bunch of genetic work, we've been able to tell that our larval catch only represents about three percent of the adults spawning every year, or at least successfully spawning, and we're not sure why. So one thing we're going to do is, which goes back to those pit tags, is we're actually going to look at spawning habitats they're using, uh, what type of spawning habitat, when they're exactly spawning, where they're spawning throughout the river. And we're actually going to use those pit tag arrays, but they, act, they float, and we're going to float down the river and actively pick up those tags as we float down so we can look at aggregations. Um, this is kind of a new technology. Um, these floaty ones, they've used it for a couple things. They're actually using it. Uh, there's a project going on on the Rio Grande. They're using it for Rio Grande, Grande Silvery Minnow. And then the other thing we want to look at is the timing of sexual maturity for Razorback suckers in the river. The, the thought process is that they are sexually mature at three to four years of age. But we don't have a lot of data to support that assumption. So we're going to actually go out and capture adult razorback suckers kind of throughout pre-spawning period into spawning period, which happens probably about March or a little bit later into April and then into June. So we're going to collect fish throughout that time period. And some of these fish will have to sacrifice so we can tell whether or not they're sexually mature. But we're also going to look at some other methods so then hopefully we don't have to sacrifice a lot of fish. And one of those is looking at hormones that they secrete to see if they are uh, sexually mature. And then the second one, which is pretty neat, is we're actually going to use a portable ultrasound machine. Wow. Yeah, so we can look in their body cavities and see hopefully if they are sexually mature and have eggs. Wow. Wow. So, so if... If these the larva stage, you're really not sure that they're being recruited into the population, and only a small percentage of the current adult population is reproducing. What's the lifespan on these fish? Razorback suckers are similar to Colorado pike minnow, forty years. Wow, wow. So it it would take a long time to see changes in yeah. the population, and and so this is going to help determine. If yeah. there is an issue or not. Exactly. And then hopefully we can develop some type. If we do de- detect an issue, if fish, you know, if fish aren't maturing at as early an age as we think, then, you know, we need, know we need to get a lot more older fish into the river system. So that would be something to try and increase survival of fish through time so they live longer. Or, you know, if it comes back that that isn't the case, it could be something with habitat that we would have to look towards ha- more habitat management in the San Juan. Okay. Okay. And what, what, what would that entail? So one of the main issues with the San Juan and downstream habitat is you know, Navajo dam controls the flow downstream. Okay. You know, historically you would have large floods in the spring from spring runoff that would create the habitat that these fish need to uh, get in as larval fish survive and recruit to adults our chances of getting high flows now that can really create that habitat is hard one because you know we can't 
we can't just let out a bunch of water from the dam because there's issues with with flooding yeah and then also with decreasing snowpack and the drought we've seen the past couple years we just don't have much water to release anyway so we're not getting those large spring flows anymore sure and so in lieu of that we have done some habitat restoration in the san juan primarily down on navajo nation through that recovery implementation program and most of that has been focused on opening up secondary channels on the river which create a lot more complexity and habitat for these fish to get into and survive okay that makes sense that makes sense well i guess kind of shifting the conversation a little bit you talked about that on these surveys that you're picking up a lot of non-native fish in your sains right and it seems like from what little bit i know about gila trout there's a little bit different type of management in that you're trying to get rid of that non-native component so this is just popped in my head right on the san juan you're you're having to deal with non-natives whereas in the gila you're trying to get rid of the non-natives is it because the gila trout can't compete yeah so so a lot of issues with with native fish do revolve around interactions with non-natives on the san juan that includes small bodied fishes like red shiner western mosquito fish and channel catfish which are present in the river the the level of effect on the native species there is not as direct as it is for something that you would see for gila trout okay so gila trout a lot of their habitat loss over the past 150 years has been due to interactions with non-native fish, including brown trout and also rainbow trout. Rainbow trout and gila trout are both of the genus Uncorhynchus. So they can, they can breed and they will actually create a viable offspring. So that so they're able to hybridize together and obviously once they start to hybridize you no longer have a gila trout yeah. left so a lot of our management for gila trout has focused around attempting to control or completely remove non-native species from the system okay and so one of our our most recent projects on that was we completed a restoration of of Gila Trout in Whitewater Creek, which is located down near Glenwood, New Mexico. And so that was a multi-year project, which involved a lot of compliance and on-the-ground pre-work just to get a sense of the system and where fish were within the watershed. I'm sure most people are familiar with the amount of wildfires that have occurred in the Gila over the past couple years. Wildfires are both a hindrance to recovery, but they also can open up opportunities for recovery. A good example of that is Mineral Creek, which is also located near Glenwood, New Mexico. Mineral Creek originally had a population of non-native rainbow trout in it. But after the Whitewater Baldy Fire in 2012, debris flows eliminated rainbow trout from the system, and we were easily able to go in there and stock gila trout. Nice. Then to recover a population there. In Whitewater Creek, we had the same effect from Whitewater Baldy, but there were still fish left in the system. 
So we implemented a project to go in there and remove those non-native fish. Like I said, it took several years. If anyone's familiar with the Gila, I'm sure most of you are, it is one of the most rugged places I've ever been in my life. And yeah. so the majority of the project took place in the wilderness. So it involved a lot of mules to get all of our gear and personnel in there, as well as a lot of helicopter flights to get additional gear in there. And then essentially we were in there for three years for two weeks at a time in the wilderness. Wow. Wow. So along the lines of removing non-native fish, where are you getting the Gila trout to put back into the system? Are they are they hatchery trout? So we actually have a couple different sources, and it depends on what we're exactly trying to do with within the recovery of Gila trout and Gila trout itself. There's a couple different ranges that we're trying to protect. Okay to preserve that that historical genetic diversity that was there. And so if we're trying to replicate a population, we can go to a, a population that's already out there and translocate fish. But there's also a, a federal hatchery in Moore, New Mexico, that primarily raises Gila trout. And we get a lot of our fish for either stocking for these recovery projects or stocking for recreational purposes from that hatchery. But we don't have state hatcheries that focus on Gila trout. We currently do not have a state hatchery that focuses on Gila trout. So there, there's a plan right now. We are uh, working on revamping the Glenwood hatchery. And the plan is for that hatchery to raise Gila trout and stock them out for recreational purposes at this point. Nice. Nice. So there's a lot of work that goes into the genetic side of it as well to make sure that you're either replicating a population you want to replicate or maintaining some sort of original genetics. Yeah. And, you know, with something like whitewater, it's it's one of the larger watersheds that we have uh, restored Gila trout back into and so actually with that with that watershed what we did is we stocked all the lineages into that single watershed to create a mixed lineage population and hopefully increase genetic diversity through that method nice well since we've kind of talked about the san juan and then moved into the gila what about the the membres yeah so as as i mentioned the members is we're primarily focused on Chihuahua chub. Historically, there were not a lot of native species in the members. It was Chihuahua chub, uh, Beautiful Shiner, and Rio Grande Sucker. And those are all natives? All natives. Nice. Uh, Beautiful Shiner is no longer found in the members and has not for many years. Uh, but with Chihuahua chub, you know, there, there's always been this population kind of hanging out and if you're familiar with Members New Mexico, the department owns a property that's in Members that consists primarily of just just the river and a little bit of the riparian zone. And that was actually purchased for protection of Chihuahua Chub. And so we do a lot of sampling on that property as well as a couple of properties that the Nature Conservancy does. And for years, we had... 
chihuahua chub population kind of hanging on. We supplemented them with stocking from fish uh, from a federal hatchery that has a, a refugia population. And then in 2013, the Silver Fire burned a lot of the, the headwaters of the members' basin. And debris flows after that wildfire wiped out all the non-native trout that were present in the members' basin. Wow. And after that occurred, there were still chihuahua chub left. And so we kind of took that opportunity to implement some in-stream habitat projects, both on that department property and members as well as the TNC properties. And since then, we've seen an explosion of Chihuahua Chub, documented a significant amount of recruitment in the population, and really Chihuahua Chub moving out of that, the core area where they were found around the town of members throughout the majority of the basin. Nice. Nice. So so are there no non-natives in the members right now, then? The only thing that we have encountered since the silver fire has been western mosquito fish okay well i guess i'm kind of changing topics here but kind of along those lines of thinking about natives and and non-natives and and fishing so obviously you said that the the gila trout is really the only game fish that you oversee so as an angler, if you're out and you catch one of these fish, since most of them are threatened or endangered, um, I assume then pretty much anything else that you manage needs to be let go. Yes, needs to be released and not removed from the water. All right. All right. Well, good to know. Um, so along the discussions of native fish management, I don't know a whole lot about native fish management, but when... Uh, it has come up in the past. A lot of times the discussion of eDNA has come up. Can you tell us just a little bit about what that is and how that's used? Yeah, eDNA or environmental DNA is a, a pretty new technology for management of fish and wildlife. We use it for a, a variety of purposes. For us, what we can do is we can take a, a sample of water and run it through a very fine filter. So generally we'll take five liters of water and run it run it through this filter using a pump and take that little filter paper and send it off. And we can actually detect the DNA of species. Wow. From that sample. And it's it's very sensitive to detection of species. So we it's very helpful for detecting rare species or species that are found in low densities. So that would include a lot of our native species that we're, we're looking for that, you know, they, they're rare, they're endangered or threatened. So there's not many of them out there. So it's mainly for presence absence. Yeah. So it's for presence absence. There has been some recent work looking at determining densities of fish, depending on the amount of DNA that's in that sample. Um, That hasn't, gone far we haven't used it for anything uh like that right now but that's definitely a possibility in the future you know besides using it for detecting uh especially things in the in the gila like loach minnow or spike dace we also use it on our projects where we're removing non-natives 
So we'll go in there and we'll take samples every certain distance throughout the watershed when we remove non-natives to see if we've actually removed all of them. Okay. Makes sense. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a much better tool for doing that than, say, going out and electrofishing 10 or 15 miles of stream to try and find one or two fish that might not have been removed. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And is it more, I mean, I assume when you're electrofishing, you have to make sure you're covering every square inch to make sure you don't miss anything, right? Exactly. And, you know, with that, with that DNA in the water and the water mixing around, generally you'll you know, if you collect that water sample from a spot where the water is flowing, you have a very good chance of detecting that fish. And it's it's sensitive enough that you can you can dial in where you think fish are left in a in a pocket or something, uh, based on how close together those samples are. For something like those non-native removals, we'll take samples every 500 to 250 meters. Wow, from from pit tags to eDNA the the amount of technology used in native fish management is pretty impressive. Yeah, it's a, it's pretty amazing the tools that people have come up with to, to help us manage our native species. Yeah, for sure. Well, we've kind of talked about all of the time that you spend in the field, which seems like you're always in the field. So being in the field, being on the rivers, even though you're focused more on non-game species, on native species, You've got to have some insights and some advice and tips for folks that are that are the weekend anglers like me that aren't spending months at a time out on the river. Yeah, we certainly get a good insight into you know where sport fish are and where the good fishing are during surveys. So it's giving me a pretty good insight in the Gila. You know, I think the East Fork of the Gila has a, an amazing smallmouth bass fishery. Really? Yes. Wow. And a lot of channel catfish. Really? It would be a great place to go. I've seen smallmouth bass in there up to 18 inches. Nice. Yeah. And, you know, there's not a ton of channel catfish in the upper San Juan, which would be kind of between the Animus Confluence and uh, the boundary of the Navajo Nation. There are some around, but there's not a lot. And besides that, it's mostly native fish. Okay, so where you are, where you're focused on native fish, that is not really trout habitat. No, it is it's downstream of the quality waters and downstream really of any of the trout habitat we would have on the San Juan. We do pick up some, some random trout down there, but it's not something that I would seek out at wow. least that low. Wow, that's interesting. The water temperature is not right for them. Yeah, exactly. As as you get farther down from, from Navajo Dam, which is a bottom-release dam, which creates the tailwater there for for the trout fishery, it, it warms up pretty quickly. So by the time you get down to the Animus River confluence, it becomes much more of a warm water stream that doesn't have suitable temperatures for trout. Are there bass in there or not really? There are no bass in there. Wow. Good deal. Good deal. Well, while we're talking about fishing... I know this is kind of probably outside the realm of your daily duties, but you spent some time developing a fishing conditions and trip planner, um, I think because you're a data nerd and and wanted to do it. (laughs) Yeah, I I would definitely uh, describe myself as a data nerd. 
But yeah, so that that trip planner was a really interesting project to me. It, it came about from some discussions uh, with some with another biologist in our department, actually our, our assistant chief of fisheries, him and I discussing the weekly fishing fishing reports that are put out by the department every week. If people haven't checked them out and you're fishing in New Mexico, check them out. They're awesome. I Even if I don't have plans to go fishing, I like to check them out and see what people are catching. Yeah. Some some big fish that come that in those reports that are that are cool to look at. Oh yeah, absolutely. But you know those reports give those weekly reports give a report for for multiple water bodies throughout the state and then also multiple species if they're present in a water body. And we have been discussing, you know, the the wealth of data that could be available in those reports from all the stuff that people provide us and on what the fishing conditions are like or what people are using. And so we, we kind of started diving into those reports to see if we could use them for anything that could be a public interface to help people find the best times of year to fish certain water bodies or the best time of years to target certain species. And so we, we looked into that and the data was actually really good as we dove into it and we started looking at some of the patterns over the years you know you could actually see and look at the best times of years to target certain species or or go to certain water bodies to target certain species and so it kind of came about from that and then i was i was in charge of kind of helping to to collate all that data and we looked at four years of data I believe it was 2016 through 2019 and worked on analyzing all that data and creating the graphs and then you know worked with our our web page manager to get those up for people to look at and have a, a public interface that people can go to and and kind of check out some of this data and you know plan fishing trips so how, how did you figure out or how did you decide what water bodies or species to focus on just what based on what data was available? Yeah, it was kind of a, a combination of what data was available. If, if you look at our fishing reports and then if you look at that, that trip planner that's online, you'll, you'll see that everything that's in the fishing report is not, does not have a graph in that trip planner. And that's primarily because you don't get a report for a lot of water buddies for a significant amount of time that you can actually create a graph that makes any sense. You might get just a few, few reports every year. And, and the second part of that was also looking at some of our, our more important and most visited fisheries throughout the state and trying to focus on them and seeing if we could use that data. So, you know, something like elephant butte that gets a lot of fishermen every year, you know, want to include something like that on there. Sure. Sure. So, again, these are on our website under the fishing tab, under the fishing conditions and trip planner. So, if somebody's going to go there for the first time and look at those graphs, kind of how can they use that to their advantage? Yeah. So there's there's two different ways to look at just those graphs. The first one is you can look at them by different water bodies which the graphs will generally have the species uh, that we have data for and we could graph on there. And then the other one is also uh, a tab where you can look at species and then the graph will have multiple water bodies on it. So you can look at you know something like catfish 
and look at different water bodies and say, hey, I want to go out next week, where would be the best place to go? And really, we, we aim this at kind of a wide variety of people that are going out fishing. If that's someone that's going out for their first time, they want to have a, you know, a better chance that fishing might be good, they can look at it. If it's someone that is new to the area or coming here for vacation and they're looking for a place to go fishing, they can look at it around their vacation and plan. Or if you know you're a seasoned fisherman and you you have a home water body that you know you like to target a species, but you're thinking about going somewhere else in the state, you got a favorite species, you can look at it for that and you know look for someplace new to fish. Well, good deal. Well, not really something that uh, is part of the native fish world, but sounded like a fun project. No, it was. It was a very fun project. I was glad I got to work on it. Good deal. Well, we're kind of wrapping up here. Do you have any last-minute tips or information that you want folks to know about uh, fishing in New Mexico or the, the Native Fish Program? I think for the Native Fish Program, I, I think it's important for New Mexicans to recognize, you know, how important those native species are and the recovery that goes into them and, you know, how, how amazing it is to have those species in our state where they're not found a lot of different places. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's it, the amount of work that we do is really amazing for the small crew that we do have working on native fish. And I, I would encourage people, you know, to look up some of the other projects we're doing throughout the state, whether that's additional self on heel trout or Rio Grande cutthroat trout or, you know, some of the minnow species or sucker species that we discussed today and ones in the Pecos and the Rio Grande. Yeah, a lot of a lot of good work going on with uh, just a few people doing it. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I think we're out of time. Matt, thanks for joining us today and telling us all about the Native Fish Program. Thanks, James. Well, thank you all for listening and joining in. Uh, be sure and check out our other episodes and the monthly e-newsletters and get outside and enjoy all the outdoor recreation opportunities that New Mexico has to offer. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.